0: listening to Revelation God Wins from Coram Deo Church, a gospel-centered missional church community in Omaha, Nebraska. For more information, visit cdomaha.com.
1: This morning's reading is an extended passage from Revelation, all of chapters 6 and 7. Now, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal... And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb." For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, "'Sir, you know.' And he said to me, "'These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more.' The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Well, I'll tell you about my weekend. I uh, flew to Fargo Friday night to speak at a conference at one of our Sister Acts 29 churches up there. Spoke all day yesterday. Uh, Got a ride to the airport in Fargo at 4 o'clock yesterday afternoon. Found out that my flight was canceled. The fastest they could get me back here was an hour from now or so. And so I talked them into letting me rent a car instead. So last night I got a car in Fargo. Drove here. uh, Slept for a few hours. If I'm tired, that's why. Um... So we'll just do the best we can this morning. Um, I want to start with uh, a quick financial update because, as you know, I'm just trying to keep you informed on where we are this year. One of the ways we worship God is through our giving. If you're not yet a Christian, or if you're just here sort of getting questions answered, this is not for you. But for those of you who Coram Deo is your church, uh, I know you want to know this. So I'll do a quick update. Since March is over, you remember January we were ahead of budget. February, I said we were behind, but then there was a bank error and we were actually ahead, so that's good. And then March, still ahead, $4,000 of where we need to be. So, good. Thank you for worshiping God, not just with your words, but with uh, how you live and how you treat your finances and your resources. Um, this morning, we come to a new section of the book of Revelation, and it ushers us into the more challenging parts of the book. So far, here's what we've seen. In chapter one, we saw Jesus. And so we just saw in chapter one, we need to see Jesus rightly. We need to rightly understand who Jesus is. In chapters two and three, we saw letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches. And so we saw what Jesus had to say, warning them against separatism and syncretism. In chapters four and five, we saw a vision of God's throne in heaven. And we learned that God is the only one who is worthy of worship because He is our Creator and because He is Redeemer. And so even from those first five chapters, you should see that the, the message of the book of Revelation is about hope. It is a hopeful message. This is not meant to be a book of maps so that you can chart out the end times on your wall calendar. All right? This is meant to give you enough information about God's plan in history that you have hope and that you can live hopefully in the midst of a broken world. So let's think for a few minutes about hope. Right, when we, say, we talk about hope, think about phrases that we often use. We often say, I see a glimmer of hope in this situation. There's light at the end of the tunnel. What we're saying in that is I don't know everything about what's going to happen, but what I see is something out there that gives me a sense of being able to live hopefully in the present. Okay? Likewise, if we don't see a glimmer of hope, then we often say that things are hopeless, that there's no hope that things will change, get better, that we'll have perspective on what we're going through. And so we talk about hope in the language of having some kind of grid or framework that helps us live in the midst of trials, right now in the present tense. What often kills hope is the reality of suffering, right? And it would be nice if we could talk about suffering in the abstract, as though suffering is only true of people who live elsewhere in the world, or suffering is only what's happening in Japan as a result of the earthquake. All of that is suffering, but but the reality is, suffering is very present for many of us here this morning. There are people here chances are if you are not suffering right now then someone in your missional community is someone close to you is going through difficult circumstances there are people in Coram Deo who have put family members in the grave early due to terminal illness it's a form of suffering there are people in Coram Deo whose marriages are in turmoil and at the point of breaking apart this week in The life of Quorum Deo. There are people who have lost jobs. There are people whose marriages have gotten to the point where it's time to throw in the towel as far as they can see it. There are people who have experienced and are going through right now infertility. Struggles of all kinds of sorts and types. That's the present tense reality in which we live. And so suffering is not something that's out there. Suffering is something that's very real in our lives in our experience right now. And what happens is without hope, if there's not hope for us in the midst of difficult circumstances, we quickly move toward one of two extremes. Either passivity of just not caring, we sort of give up hope, or cynicism. We get bitter, jaded, frustrated, angry, and we sort of develop that hardened, bitter edge toward life. Uh, what we see in chapter 5 of Revelation, a step back into last week, is that John, the apostle, finds that hope is almost extinguished. Because remember, John is, is experiencing this vision. He's writing this as a pastor. He is living in a broken world. He's shepherding people who are living in a broken world under a difficult reality of sin and suffering. And we remember what he sees in Chapter 5 is is he sees in the right hand of God who's sitting on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. All right. In the Roman world, this is exactly how wills, contracts, legal documents were filed. You would write out uh, your will or your contract on a scroll, you would roll it up, it would be sealed with seven seals, and it would be written on the outside, sort of a summary of what was in it, and then it would be put on a shelf or in some kind of storage uh, unit to find it later. And so if you have like a file drawer in your house where you have file folders containing documents, and on that file folder is a label sort of cluing you into what's in there, that's exactly what a scroll like this is. It has information within it and on the outside is just sort of a summary of what's there and so this scroll that john sees in in the right hand of god is it represents god's plan for history and as he sees this as john recognizes god is holding a scroll he begins to feel hope well up within him because He's hopeful that this is is going to help understand, this is going to help give some framework to the existence of living living in a broken world, a world where God's peace and God's good creation has been vandalized and wrecked and tarnished by sin. But notice in in chapter 5, we see that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was found who was able to open the scroll or look into it. And so it says, John began to weep. All right, why is he weeping? He's weeping because if no one can reveal, if no one can show us God's plan and God's purpose for history, then we don't have light at the end of the tunnel. There's nothing that can provide context for us to live confidently in the present in light of. Oh, I see! I see that God has purposes in this, and so John's wrecked because he's realizing, man. If I don't have some sense of what God's doing, it's hard for me and for the people of God to live with hope and with victory and with worship in the midst of difficult present circumstances. And then one of the heavenly beings comes to John and assures him that Jesus has conquered. And because Jesus has conquered, Jesus has authority to take the scroll and to open it and to reveal what is inside of it. And so it's not an accident, it's not a coincidence that this book is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ, which he gave to his servant John. Jesus is the one who by his death and resurrection has authority to reveal to us the purposes of God. And this book is his revelation of those things to John. And so that brings us to Revelation chapter 6. I've been a little worried about getting to this chapter. Because this is where Revelation starts to get interesting and where people start to do really goofy things. So maybe you've seen this bus bench that's a few blocks from here, right? Uh, May 21st. If we're still here on May 22nd, it's going to be interesting, right? We're going to have some good laughs. But apparently, if you listen to KFYR or KYFR 920 AM, you can find out how Judgment Day is May 21st, 2011, despite the fact that Jesus said he doesn't even know the date or the hour. Only the Father knows. So apparently, even though Jesus doesn't know, a.m. does, and so that's a pretty good radio station right there. So so sort of to to spare us from some of the goofiness that, that people get into when they start doing strange things in the book of Revelation, I want to start today by taking you back to Matthew 24, because here's the deal. In Matthew 24, Jesus' disciples come to him, and they ask him about the end of the age, and he answers their question in a very conversational way. And so sometimes... The book of Revelation seems inaccessible to us because it's symbolic and it has a lot of imagery and metaphor. And so I just want to take you back and show you, okay, here's Jesus talking to his disciples. This should help frame for you what the same Jesus is saying to one of his same disciples in the book of Revelation. All right? So Matthew 24, if you have a Bible, go there. I won't have these verses on the screen. I'll read them to you. And what we'll do is the screen will just show sort of a bullet point list of what Jesus says in summary about the last days. Matthew 24, verse 3, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Hey, Jesus, tell us, tell us more about how we're going to know when you're coming back and when everything's coming to an end. Verse 4, Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray including 920 a.m. 4, verse 5, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So the first thing you need to see that Jesus says from his own mouth is, there's not an antichrist, there are many antichrists. Okay, Many people are going to come, seek to lead people astray, claim weird things about who they are and what they've done. Jesus says, expect that. Verse 6, and you will hear of wars And rumors of wars. See that you are not yet alarmed, or not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. So there's going to be international conflict, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. All right, I know a lot of you ladies have given birth recently in Corumdale. The beginnings of birth pains means what? Still a lot of labor ahead of you, right? Some of you guys, 20, 21, 22 hours of labor still before a child is born, right? So Jesus is saying, hey, all that stuff is just preliminary. It's just, it, it's not the end yet. Then, verse 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So there's going to be persecution, suffering for God's people. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So there will be false prophets, people falling away, people losing their faith, people peacing out on Jesus and going and doing their own thing. All that is normal and expected to happen Verse 13, this should sound a lot like Revelation 2 and 3, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. Then the end will come. So, in other words, if we could summarize what Jesus is laying out in Matthew 24, he's saying, okay, there's going to be a general pattern throughout all of history of persecution, suffering, tribulation, trial, hardship, war, famine, all of that. Then there's going to be an escalation of that at the very end, and then Jesus' second coming, judgment, new heavens, new earth. Okay? In other words, well, let's get to Revelation 6, and I'll show you the in other words, all right? Revelation 6, notice Jesus has not opened the scroll yet. He's only breaking seals. It's important. I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. I've been telling you all along, John does not make up anything new. He's ripping off these horses and their riders from the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. You can go there and read it later today. He's just saying, okay, all that stuff Zechariah talked about, now that's all going to be happening right now. So you have four, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Here they are. The first one is a white horse, and it represents military conquest, conquering, expansionism, colonialism, that sort of thing. Second, we see a red horse, which symbolizes war. When he opens the third seal, a black horse comes, which symbolizes famine. And you'll notice in verse uh, 6, I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for denarius, and three quarts of barley for denarius. I know you have no idea what that means. Basically what it means is, it's going to cost a lot of money to buy food. Okay, A day's wage, what you get paid for a full day of work, is what it's going to cost to buy your dinner. Okay, That's fa- In other words, famine food prices going way up, okay? When you open the fourth seal, a pale horse, which symbolizes death, which is sort of the result of the first three. And notice death is given authority over a fourth of the earth, all right? meaning these things are going to be limited in scope and duration and intensity. It's not a worldwide panic everywhere. It's various places, various times in history, various parts of the world experiencing famine, war, conquest, death. Now, Is that the world we live in? Yes. All right? That's just life in a fallen world. None of this is the end times. None of this is Jesus coming back tomorrow. None of this is, oh my gosh, there was an earthquake and tsunami. It must be the end of the world. It's suffering and tribulation, which is what Jesus said. Right? Our brothers and sisters in Japan are going through a difficult time right now. And and unfortunately, that's normal life in a fallen world. Doesn't mean it's good. That doesn't mean we, we like it. That doesn't mean we don't long for it to be different. But it just means this is not the end. This is normal. These seals are describing a normal state of human life in a world that's vandalized by sin. And what Revelation 6 is telling you is God is sovereignly behind all of this. There's war in the world because God allows there to be war. There's famine in the world because God allows there to be famine. There's death in the world because God allows there to be death. God, in His sovereign wisdom, is behind and underneath all of this, and He's working out a sovereign purpose in all of it. And if you don't know that, and if you don't see that, you will have a hard time making sense of the world. But it goes even further. Look at verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. Oh, sorry, verse 9. Fifth seal. I backed up into verse 7 accidentally with my eyes. All right, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Uh, The photo that you're going to see here is Rashid Emmanuel, who's a church planter in Pakistan, who was a part of our church planting network. Uh, Last June, Rashid and his brother Saeed were accused of blaspheming the prophet Muhammad. There's strict blasphemy laws in Pakistan. These men were arrested Someone had produced some written letters, which they claimed were from Rashid, uh, saying blasphemous things about Muhammad. So last July, this case went to trial. Handwriting experts were brought in to testify. Those handwriting experts did their work and concluded the writings had been forged. They were not, in fact, the work of Rashid and Saeed Emmanuel. And so these two brothers were on the verge of being exonerated, set free, On their way out of the courthouse that day, they were gunned down in cold blood by five masked assassins carrying automatic weapons. Rashid left behind a pregnant wife, an ailing mother and father who depended on him for support. His attackers have never been found, never been brought to justice. There are some on the ground in Pakistan who believe that the police who were supposed to be guarding Rashid were actually complicit in his murder. His only crime was being an outspoken Christian in a city that is predominantly and aggressively Muslim. What John sees in Revelation is a whole company of men and women like Rashid. Men and women who have been killed simply for their faith in Christ and the testimony they bear to Christ. Sort of this host of martyrs who have been killed throughout history, not for violating any laws, but simply for testifying humbly to the good news of Jesus. And these martyrs are crying out, God, wh- when are you going to make this right? When are you going to bring justice for this injustice? When are these five men who gunned down a soon-to-be father who's a young church planter in Pakistan, when is there going to be justice? When is that going to be made right? When are those five men going to be brought to trial? There's a crying out, a longing to God for justice. And and we see in John's vision, God says that will happen as soon as the full number of brothers who are to be killed just like you is fulfilled. In other words, God knows that good, innocent, godly people like Rashid are dying. And in fact, God is okay with that. And in fact, that's part of God's plan. And in fact, he has a specific number in mind of how many there will be in his providence. Are you okay with that? That's the theology of the Bible. Okay, here's the choices you have. Here's your choices. Suffering is random, suffering is retributive, or suffering is redemptive. Okay, those are your three options. We all live in the same world, and we have to make sense of the same facts. The fact is, the world is not as it should be. So here are your choices. Suffering is random. It doesn't mean anything. It's purposeless. It just happens. It's you know survival of the fittest. Maybe bad things happen to you. Maybe they don't. There's no way to tell. There's no purpose in it. It's just random. Your second option is, suffering is retributive. If you get killed, if you get sick, if something bad happens to you, it's because God is mad at you. Okay. So if you get gunned down in cold blood like Rashid, maybe that's because God was angry with you or you did something wrong or your wife did something wrong or there was some sin in your life that wasn't confessed. Your third option, the Bible's option, is suffering is redemptive. In the midst of suffering, trial, tribulation, hardship, persecution, bad things happening to good people, the hope in all of that is there is a redemptive God who is at work, We don't understand the nature of all that he's doing. What we do know is he's going to make it all right and he's sovereign over it all and he's bringing it all toward his purpose. That is the only grid that actually gives you hope in the midst of suffering. That's the only thing that can allow you to go through difficulty right now and say, I have hope, I know, I believe that a sovereign, personal, good God is at work in this for my good, and for his purposes. See, here's what John wants you to see. Suffering is not a reason to lose hope. It's a reason to have hope. Suffering is not a reason to lose hope. It's a reason to have hope. You should lose hope if there's no God. But see, if there is a God, suffering is not a reason to lose hope. It's a reason to have hope because it suggests, it it means that there is an intelligent purpose behind the difficulty, the hardship of human life. That that God is at work in all of our suffering, in all of our pain, in all of our trial, to, to do something with it. See, we have a tendency to find our hope in the absence of suffering, right? My hope is in life being good for me, right? So, If I'm healthy and safe, if I have money in my bank account, if my family is doing well, if nothing bad is happening, then I have hope, right? Then I am happy, content, satisfied. But listen, if that's where my hope is, what happens when I lose my job, when something bad happens in my family, when I get terminal cancer? What happens? My hope is gone. There's nothing left for me to hope in, and so I become bitter, despondent, despairing, I don't have any hope because whatever I had my hope in has now been taken away. John says, hey, there's a better way to do this. The created world was never meant to be the container in which you put your hope. God is the one in whom you are to put your hope. And if you have God and if your hope is in God, then all the things that happen here, whatever gets taken away from you in this life, whatever suffering and trial you go through, guess what? You have God. You have something that is a greater good, a greater blessing, and one who will make all of that make sense in the end, who gives hope in the midst of that. Do you ever wonder why some people get terminal illness and they become bitter, angry, despondent, and other people get the exact same illness and they are joyful, hopeful, loving, trusting, just wonderful people to be around in in the midst of really, really crummy circumstances? It's the exact same circumstance dropping in both people's lives, There's no difference in the circumstance. What's different? The difference is the people who are bitter, despondent, depressed, they tend to have their hope in health or in living a long life or dying at an old age. And so now that the prospect of that has gone away, they're mad at God. They're mad at life. People who have hope in something beyond the created order in a good, sovereign, loving God tend to be able to look at hardship and say, you know what? That's not the most important thing. Man, I would have loved to live till I was old, but that's not the most important thing. You can take away my health. You can take away my finances. You can take away, you know, the the blessing of my life. But you can't take away Jesus. This is what Jesus meant In the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, store up treasures in heaven, why? Because no moth can destroy, no rust can destroy, no thief can break in and steal. The whole point is, look, you need to have your hope in something that is beyond your circumstances. And here's the good news, verse 12, chapter 6. So, four four seals are opened, right? And just basic tribulation, persecution, suffering, hardship in life... Fifth seal is open. The martyrs cry out, God, when are you going to bring justice? God says, wait a little while longer. Verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. What's going on here? Creation is getting taken apart. Okay? This is decreation language. Remember Genesis. God created everything out of nothing, and God created it good, and God set up an order and a structure by which it all functions. Right? Whenever the prophets speak of God's judgment, God's wrath, the final day on which God will make everything right, the coming of God's eternal kingdom, they speak in the language of decreation. Right? God is going to take apart, dismantle, destroy, not in a vindictive sense, but in a, in a recreation sense, what is, and he's bringing in new heavens and a new earth. So anytime you see decreation language, now we're talking about, okay, judgment, final day, God's coming kingdom. I mean, notice at the end of the chapter, the people who are experiencing this say the great day of God's wrath has come and who can stand? Decreation. Now, is this a literal description of what's going to happen? Is the sun going to go dark? Are the, falls going to, are the stars going to fall out of the sky? Uh, or is this a figurative description? Is it just describing that God is going to come in judgment and bring new heavens, new earth? Could be either one. Here's the point. The world as it is now will no longer be the world as it is. God is bringing a new world, a new heavens, and a new earth. This created world is going to come to an end, and here's the point of this. With it is going to come to an end everything else you can put your hope in besides God. Whatever else you have your hope in is part of the created order. If it's your health, if it's your family, if it's your job, if it's your good education, if it's your life being easy, if it's your comfort, whatever you're hoping in is coming to an end. The only thing that's going to remain is God, His kingdom, His people. So here's what Greg Beal says. Humanity has become perverted and has worshipped the creation. That's Romans 1. Therefore, creation itself, sun, moon, stars, trees, animals, and so on, has become an idol that must be removed. God decreating, taking away the created world is God dealing with the problem of idolatry and taking away everything else we could possibly worship. And so at that point in time, You will have two options, either what you worship will be taken away, or you will be one of the people who hope in God and worship God, and what you worship and hope in will still remain. And this is then the point of chapter 7. What does John see in chapter 7? Look with me, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. So wait, is this chronological? I guess not, since there's still earth, sea, and trees, which just all got destroyed right before this. Are you with me? You've got to know how to read the book of Revelation. This is not chronological. Okay? Now he's backing up and saying, okay, before the end of all that, here's what I saw. Four angels holding back the four winds of the earth. Hey, don't, don't bring any judgment yet. I saw another angel, verse 2, ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Okay? This is not like a barcode that gets burned on your forehead. It's not something weird like that. What it's referencing is in the Old Testament when God in Deuteronomy said, You shall meditate on my law day and night, write it on your foreheads, bind it around your hearts, tie it onto your wrists. remember what happened in the Passover. God brought judgment in Egypt on the the oppressors of his people. And what did he say? He said, listen, I'm going to send my angel. My angel's going to indiscriminately destroy, kill the firstborn in Egypt. So here's what I want you to do, people. Take the blood of a lamb, rub it on your doorpost. When my angel passes through the land to destroy, when he sees that blood over your doorpost, he will pass over your house, leave your family untouched. You will be spared from my wrath. It's the exact same thing that's going on in Revelation 7. Hey, how do I know that I will be spared? What's my confidence that I will be spared from God's wrath, that I will be delivered from this day of chaos that's coming, that I won't be judged? My confidence is God's work to say, oh, okay, hold on, seal all my servants. Make a mark on them so that so they can be spared from my wrath. That seal might be a couple of things. Probably it's the Holy Spirit living in you. The rest of the New Testament says, The Holy Spirit is the seal of God's ownership. That if if you've been converted, if you've been regenerated, the Spirit of God lives within you, and that is the seal that you belong to God. It's probably what's going on here. But notice it goes on to list and says, I heard the number of the sealed 144,000. So does that mean there's only 144,000 people going to heaven? Or are numbers in Revelation symbolic? Yes, they are symbolic. What is 144 a multiple of? Twelve. What does twelve signify? The full completeness of God's people. Twelve tribes of Israel, twelve apostles. And thousand meaning this is a big, big bunch of people. All right? If you compare this list of the twelve tribes to every other list in the Bible, it, you'll start to scratch your head. you know why? Because they're not listed this way anywhere else. John knew his Old Testament. You already know that because he's ripping off images left and right out of it. Why does he change the order of the 12 tribes? Why does he leave a couple tribes out and add some different ones in? What's going on there? This is not talking about some future Israelite remnant that will be sealed in the future tribulation. What it's talking about is the multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi people of God who are now the new Israel, all of God's people that He's gathered from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is the same group of people you're about to see in chapter 9 worshiping Jesus from every tribe, tongue, and nation and saying, thank you that you're worthy to save us. It's just, this whole chapter is talking about God's people being saved, being sealed, being set apart, And what marks them? By what are they set apart? Jesus' death and resurrection and their trust in that and God's Holy Spirit within them marking them as His people. In other words, the whole point of these two chapters is to tell you this. Your hope is not in the absence of suffering. Your hope is in the presence of God. If your hope is in the absence of suffering, this life will be very disappointing to you because suffering is bound to happen. If your hope is in God and in your relational proximity to Him, His ownership of you, your connectedness with Him through the person and work of Jesus and the living of the Holy Spirit within you, tremendous hope. Nothing to fear. Whatever can get taken away from you Your relationship with Christ can't get taken away from you. God knows those who are His, the scriptures say elsewhere. Your hope is not in the absence of suffering. It's in the presence of God. And so look, here's the good news of the gospel, right? The good news of the gospel is this. Though you live in a world that's marked with suffering, Jesus came to suffer in your place for your sins. To bear the wrath of God that you deserve. To take the punishment for God. To bear all of this wrath, anger, judgment that you deserve. Jesus took all that on the cross so that now if you trust in Him there is nothing left for you but blessing, salvation, preservation from God's judgment. Because Jesus has become the lamb that takes away your sin, God can pass over you. This is the good news of the gospel. And John is trying to paint it very clearly for you. Listen, if you you aren't marked by Christ, if you choose not to hope in Him, and your hope is in something in this created world, here's the bad news. This created world is going to get shaken and taken apart by the God who created it. And so this is is the choice. Will you hope in God and in what He's done through Jesus? Or are you going to continue to hope in all kinds of other things? Even things that aren't bad, aren't sinful, aren't wrong. They're just temporary. They can't sustain your hope, your longing. They can't be the thing in which you find identity and security. Only God can do that. And so I just want to ask you, what are you hoping in this morning? What is your hope placed in? If your hope is in God and in what God has done through Jesus Christ, the good news is this world is as close to hell as you'll ever get. And if your hope is in this world, in the created order, in your family, in your job, in your situation in life, this is as close to heaven as you'll ever get. This is as good as it's going to get. This messed up, jacked up, broken, sin-wrecked world. This is, this is the best it's going to get. That's not a very good situation. God is the only one worthy of your hope. And so look, what is your hope in? Well, what is it that allows you to live in, a, in, a, in suffering, in trial, and tribulation with a sense of purpose and with light at the end of the tunnel? It's the promise, it's the truth, it's the scriptural reality that God is sovereign over time and history and that God invites you to place your hope in Him, not in what is here. And so I just want you to wrestle with that question. Where is your hope this morning? And and listen, if you're hoping in Christ, in a minute we're going to come to the communion table as a way of demonstrating and sort of acting out with our bodies the tangibleness of that hope. That we hope in a down payment that was made on the cross that's yet to be realized in eternity and listen if you're hoping in something else in some that's created world, that's all right. I just want you to be honest about it it's not what God made you to hope in, and so it's okay that you are in that place. it's one let us not pretend that you're not. but be honest with yourself. what are you hoping in and begin to wrestle with. What is God's why are you here this morning? Why are you here hearing the book of Revelation? Why are you here wrestling with God as creator and whether he's worthy of your hope? Is he not a more reliable, a more joyful, a more worshipful source of hope than whatever it is you're trusting in right now? Let's pray together. Jesus, thanks for giving this book that that does show us light at the end of the tunnel. That promises us that just as you created the world good, and it was ruined through sin and rebellion, that you are going to restore it. You are going to redeem it. You are going to bring new heavens and a new earth. And that in the midst of our current suffering and pain and tribulation and trial, that you are at work in that. And we don't know why and we don't know what and sometimes we want to question what you're doing but what gives us hope is the fact that you're doing something and that that something is redemptive and that you have purposes that we can't see and that we can't understand that make sense of the way life is. So Father, I know there are many in this room who are in the midst of suffering. There are many of us that are just in difficult situations. And so I pray this morning that you would get our eyes off our circumstances and onto you. So that we would not be despairing, despondent, depressed, angry, bitter, cynical, but that instead we would begin to see the beauty of a God who is at work and sovereign over time and history to work in our circumstances and through our circumstances for his glory and for the good of his people. And God, my prayer this morning that if there are those in this room who who are not right now hoping in you, that you would show them the the frailty of whatever their hope is in. And that we truly would be able to say and to sing as we sang earlier, that in Christ alone, my hope is found. That we would not be a people who say that with our words, but who actually cling to and hope for all kinds of other things. But that we would really be a people who live that reality out, so that when we're stricken with sickness, when we lose our jobs, when finances go south, when bad things happen in our family, we are still rooted and anchored, hoping in Christ and able to worship in spite of the circumstances instead of our worship being dictated by our circumstances. Would you do that, God, for your good and for, our, for your